Welcome to the Nitty Gritty, where we challenge conventional thinking. Join us as we explore real life, real people, real stories, and how pushing back can make all the difference. Welcome to the Nitty Gritty. I don't know what episode we're on. They all run together. Eight? Well, I think I might be most excited for today's guest. You probably don't like it when I call you like one of my heroes. It might be awkward. I mean, people say it to me all the time, and it's just never comfortable. I'm just kidding. That never really happens to me. But did you say my meat's the best? So that's cool. But um, Kim White is here. I wish we had like a sound effect. Standing ovation. Some kind of like the crowd. Right. But no, she is one of one of my favorite people, especially to follow on social media. If any of you follow her, it's Kim Can Kick It. Right? Right. On pretty much all your social media. Mm-hmm. See, we're getting that out of the way right in the beginning now. You normally forget that. Usually it's at the end. It's like, oh, yeah, what's your social media? <laughs> so we met, let's see, we met, it's been about a year, right? Just over a year, yeah. So we Did met. Did you meet the first time here at the restaurant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we met here at Bam Bam's, what about, it's been about a year ago. Yeah. So I don't want to say a mutual friend because he is really <laughs> your friend. We're acquaintances. You know, I'd like to think that we're. We'll just say we're buddies. That's good. I don't have his phone number. You do. Yes. Right? So Chris Harrison and I met, what, of The Bachelor, of course. I mean, we don't really need to give him an introduction. He shouldn't need one. Um, I met him in Austin when I was cooking there about six or seven years ago. And then we just kind of stayed in touch randomly through social media. So about a year ago when they were filming Becca's season... He wanted to come in for lunch, and I was so excited about it. And he showed up with you. Yeah. And that's the first time that we met. And so, and Chris just went on and on about how amazing she is and how amazing her story is. And my wife has been obsessed with you ever since. Yeah. She, she was in here that day because Cam gave us like the inside scoop that Chris was coming in. So we had like our own little fan table. Yeah, he was so cool. The fact that he was just like, yeah, you can yeah. bring your wife, bring your friends. I know. He was whatever. like, everyone sit down. He was so awesome. Cool. He's such a good guy. So so how did you two meet? Uh, I met him at an Imagine Dragon concert. Oh, that's right. You're because yeah. you're friends with the Imagine Dragons guys. Yeah. Right? So I was sitting in the like family section and one of the their managers saw Chris like waiting in line at the Troubadour in L.A. Right. Because it was just this tiny little concert. And um, the manager saw him and was like, oh, my gosh, Chris, like, come on. You're like, you don't need to wait in line. <laughs> So they brought him inside and um, brought him up to like the family section and he sat down right next to us. And my friend that was sitting next to me, she was like, I think that's the bachelor guy. And I looked at him and I was like, no, it's not. And then I looked at him again because it was weird. He had scruff on his face. He was in jeans and like a T-shirt. So to see him out of context, it it was like super it was super weird. Didn't register. And so I just stared at him for a second and I was like, it is is so i <laughs> i put my hand on his leg and i was like are you chris harrison <laughs> it's like if i had a nickel for every time that happened <laughs> <laughs> and he was like yeah and he was a sweetheart we talked the whole concert and dan from imagine dragons had kind of shared my story with him at the end of the concert right and i that was literally there was a year exactly from the day i had been diagnosed was the day that i met chris and so it was like kind of an emotional day anyways right and Chris was like, the women tell us tomorrow night, you guys should come. But we were flying back here to Utah, so we couldn't. And he's like, okay, come to the finale. And I was going to be in Tahiti with my husband during the finale, which was right. amazing. And I was like, dang it, I'm like losing all these opportunities <laughs> to go to the finale. And he was like, Mac has my information, come whenever you want. And so I remember I was sitting in the bathtub one night and I was like super depressed from chemo and just having a really bad day. And... I got on my email, sent Chris an email, and I'm like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. I met you at the Troubadour, wondering if you actually meant what you said. And he emailed me, like, right back. And he was like, of wow. course I did. Come, bring how many people you want. Like, so the first time we went, there were seven of us that went, and that was Caitlin's season finale. No And way. I've gone ever since. That's so cool. Really? Yeah. So, like, how long had it been that you had met him that you emailed him? Um, It would have been... Probably a good like six months. So quite a while. Yeah. And he was still just really responsive. Yeah. That's cool. 
there's I don't know something about our relationship just like he because I'm sure he hears stories like mine all the time and just like yeah. well <laughs> maybe not but mine wasn't that dramatic yet well r- I mean a little bit but not I don't know something about it he just like put me under his arm and just he just loved me well from the and, get I think, go, and it's so sweet I think with you you're a lot more than just your story like thank you well sorry i don't mean to get all but i mean it 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 is it's fascinating i do remember seeing you remember my friend trisha jacobson right Mm -hmm. so right before that day when you guys came in i actually saw her post i think it was right before she posted about you coming in yeah and meeting for the first time and that's when it kind of all clicked but um but yeah i mean i think that that your story i mean i don't know how much you want to talk about it i'm sure you get Talk it's forever. such i mean yeah. for for those I would of you love out to there, hear you I, tell I, as much yeah. as you're willing to share about it for those of you that you know don't know um four times is that like can't you've beat cancer or oh. overcome it how many different times no they just um with my so i was diagnosed with what's called adrenal cortical carcinoma five and a half years ago i was pregnant when we found out found the first tumor which was 11 centimeters um, when they admitted me to the hospital that day, I ended up getting help syndrome three days later and had to deliver our 18 week old baby boy. What's help syndrome? It's just, it's like a, I, the easiest way to explain it, it's a more serious condition of preeclampsia. Okay. And it, um, the mom will die unless you deliver the baby. Wow. So most women get it towards the end of their pregnancy when the baby's far enough along to live after delivery. Um, there's not very many cases where the mom gets it at 18 weeks and, you know, something so low. So, so I were, was, were you sick when you went into the hospital at 18 weeks in? So they found my blood pressure shot up at 14 weeks and they had been monitoring me for the next four weeks, trying to fix my, figure out what was going on with my blood pressure. And that's when they finally decided to do an ultrasound on my kidneys. And that's when they found the tumor and admitted me to the hospital. Um, and by this point I couldn't like breathe. Like my blood pressure was 180 over 120 at that point, which is insane. Um, I would like worry about dying in my sleep just because my heart would like do all these weird palpations and just all this craziness. And so did you have any history of health issues in the family? Anything at all? No, not at all. Like my little girl, she was 18 months, um, at the time. And with her pregnancy, like I exercised literally three days before I delivered her was doing like body pump classes, like lifting weights. Like I was always, I played college soccer. So I was always super fit, healthy and had no nothing. Wow. So it was just, it just blindsided us. Um, and then they did the surgery to remove the main tumor. Um, and that surgery, they discovered that the surgery had invaded my IVC, which is the biggest vein that goes to your heart. So that complicated things during surgery that had called an emergency cardio team and open up my IVC to take the, the tumor out inside of that. And then they found, they realized it's definitely cancer because before surgery, they thought they were all like 99% sure it's not cancer. So, um, a couple weeks later we get the calls telling us that it's adrenal cortical carcinoma. And I was so naive to cancer that when they told me that the tumor had been cancerous I just thought well it's gone like I'm fine um, and then it was when we actually looked up the type of cancer once we found out that's when I realized like oh crap because it had a list of like worst case scenarios like poor prognosis and I had a check mark next to every single one and isn't that a really rare form yeah so cancer? it's one in a million Sheesh. and it's one in a million yeah and only 20 percent of patients live five years and those 20% are the ones that catch it early. And we didn't catch mine early because it had already spread into my IVC and then spread to my lungs at that point as well. So it was basically just the first oncologist I met said, you're dying. Chemo doesn't work. Like there's nothing we can do basically. So what was that? I mean, how long of time had that taken from when you had gone in to so 18 weeks, first found something to that? So that was February 20th of 2014 was the day we found the tumor. And then um, March 12th was the day of surgery. So it was end of March that oh we gosh. were told, like, you're dying. 
And I, I just remember after that appointment, like crying and crying in the car and calling my older sister and being like, how the heck am I going to tell mom, mom and dad that their daughter's dying? That, that just like devastated me to be, and then thinking about the fact that I had an 18 month old daughter and she was going to grow up without her mom. Like that's, that was really one of the roughest moments of all of it was after that appointment. But we ended up going to Chicago. We left Utah to go get another opinion. And most oncologists have never seen my type of cancer. So this oncologist hadn't, but she was like, she was just a spitfire and was just like ready to fight and do whatever we needed to do. She started me on oral chemo. It didn't really work. So then it was about... What took you to Chicago? My mom just looked up um, cancer treatments places and she found the cancer... cancer treatment centers of america and we were on a a flight like two days later to Hmm. go out there and check it out so i did treatment they did another surgery um that following november to go in after the six tumors that were my lungs um and then because of negligence of the dang surgeon i almost died after that surgery what what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) so with my type of cancer um I had lost my first adrenal gland because that's where the adrenal glands start. And then my other one was when you take the oral chemo for my type of cancer, um, it puts your other adrenal gland to sleep. And your adrenal glands is what, when you go into fight or flight, they're what's released as cortisol to help you like get through it. And so when your body goes through a stress of a surgery, it needs extra, naturally your body would release more cortisol to get you through it. So for me, anytime I have any kind of anesthesia or sedation, I have to get stress doses. Um, and then depending on how long the procedure is and all that depends on how much I need. And then I usually need it for a following of like two to three days, depending on the extent of the surgery. And so this was a pretty big surgery. They went in through my back. There's like a big incision. And, um, after surgery, he stopped giving me hydrocortisone and my body doesn't make any cortisol. And so I just slowly started, it got to the point where I couldn't talk and Tragen kept telling them like she needs cortisol in her system like give her some hydrocortisone and they were just and the the doctor like came in and was like no she's fine and it got I couldn't feed myself like there's pictures of people trying to feed me like I couldn't open my eyes and Tragen like freaked out at one point and he was like um he was like someone get me another doctor like she needs another doctor she is going to die and one of the nurses went and got another doctor and that doctor walked in the room and was like, someone get her some hydrocortisone. And like, once they gave it to me, I started slowly coming back. But so what the doctor say? Oh, he never came back in. He never came. You in never apologized. saw him again. Nope. Of course not. What? He, he was such like the, the oncologist was so pissed. Do you remember his name? <laughs> Let's call him now, right now. Don't do it. <laughs> I remember it starts with a K, but I don't really remember. Yeah, I was like, what a jerk. He never came in and apologized. He never, like, nothing. Because then he, then we could claim negligence if he owns up to it. Right. So doctors oh have gosh. to be, like, super careful about stupid stuff like that. But it's crazy. So when you're going through this, you're finding out how rare it is. I mean... They're telling you, are they telling you, you probably only have a certain amount of time? Yeah. This is such a stupid question, but I don't even know. (laughs) How does that feel? Like, I mean, what do you think about when, when you, when you're told that? I think, I think shock, shock is a beautiful thing I've discovered because a lot of the beginning, I feel like shock really protected us. Um, What do you mean by that? I feel like there's so there was so much going on that the sh- I feel like the shock protected me of the reality of it all. As much as I was feeling emotions and and so sad and overwhelmed, um, you think about that and you're like, how do you even get through something like that? And I feel like I truly feel like shock gets you through something like that. Like our bodies kind of protect us mm-hmm. from what's what what's really going on, and you just keep like slowly moving forward because you're still in shock and you don't like when I look back at it now, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like what happened in a matter of a couple weeks span is just insane. So I feel, but I, that the day that we've, you know, that doctor said you're dying. I, that was the worst. And I just, 
you know, my daughter's life just flashed before my eyes and I was like, I'm going to miss this. 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 So every time now that I'm here for so many of these milestones, like her starting kindergarten and now she's going to start first grade. It's like those, it's so special to be like, I thought I was going to miss all these and I'm still here. So it's pretty, Oh my gosh, it's pretty special. But after that surgery, the tumors more came back in my lungs. So then I start IV chemo and I ended up doing that here in Utah. I found a new oncologist and that was 2015. And that was just the year of hell. Chemotherapy was Monday through Thursday. Um, Monday, Tuesdays was three and a half hours. Wednesday, Thursdays was five and a half to six. And then I'd go in on Fridays for fluids and then I'd get three weeks off and then I'd start again. And how long did this go? A year. Oh my God. That was a year? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we call 2015 like the worst year ever. Because chemo, as much as it takes your hair away and, and makes you really sick and like got sickly skinny and all that, but it messed with me mentally so bad. And I there was points where I was like suicidal and I just like I look back at my journal entries and I'm like, I don't want to be here. Life would be so much better if I was just gone. Like. I hated my husband for ever trying to be positive. Like, I was just like, how dare you be positive? This is sucks. Like, I just, and I, w- and I held resentment towards him that he got to, I would just think about like, I'm going to die. You're going to get married and you get to enjoy our daughter. And so then I resented him and like pushed that on him. And he was just there trying to love me and I wouldn't allow it. And we always talk about like Hensley is the only reason we're still together from that year. Like she got us through. Dragon's like, I just came home just to see Hensley. In those days, what made you keep going? We were really good at planning things. Um, so the week of surgery or the week of chemo, I would feel horrible the week after by week three, I would feel okay. And then that following week, right before I'd start chemo again, I would feel the best. And we, I had to have something to look forward to. So whether it was just like a little girl's trip or just like, we even went to Havasu pie in the middle of all of it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. My doctors were like, you're going through "Uh, chemo and you're going to like, could you just go to Bridal Veil Falls or something? <laughs> My doctors were like, is there service down there? I was like, I don't know, but I guess we'll find out. They were like so concerned, but I helicoptered in. Like, obviously I can hike 10 miles. Sure. And then I horsebacked out. But like walking on the trails that people are always like, oh my gosh, there's a bald person down here. Like, what's happening? <laughs> well, you had to be feeling pretty weak too, right? Oh, so weak. Oh my gosh. So doing stuff like that. But also moving my body has always been huge. So anytime I could do anything to move my body, it always helps me mentally, everything to get through it. But I even look back at that year and I'm like, I don't know how we survived it. When you started, did you know it was going to be a year? Or is it one of those things where you do a couple of times, see how it goes and just kind of keeps on almost dragging out? And everything with my type of cancer is just trial and error. Like... And they knew that this type of chemo doesn't even really work, but it can slow it down. And so, and that's kind of what it did. It kind of slowed down the growth, but I never had a good scan. It was just like, well, you only, there's only like 10 more new tumors. <laughs> like, wow. so it was all, there was a, two tumors that they could, or two scans they considered stable where they were like, looks like some of them are grown, but there's no new ones, but some of them may have shrunk. So we're calling it stable. Um, but of that year, everything else was always like bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And just, did you have any other surgeries that month or were they just trying to do it through chemo? Just through chemo that year. Um, and then when we got to, uh, 2016, um, my lungs were just full. Like we couldn't even count how many tumors were in my lungs. And my oncologist was like, I'm so sorry. He was like, you probably have two to three months. I don't. I don't know what else to do. He had tried switching um, the type of chemo, and we had done uh, three months of a different type of chemo, and it hadn't done anything either. And so he, you know, he's like, I've done all that I know what to do and gave me another two to three months to live. So that's the second or third time. That's the second. In a year, year and a half. 
oh. that you've heard you have two to three months. And it's like, I guess you would expect after a year of chemo to start maybe hearing some good news. Yeah. And most people, like most cancers respond to chemo. And so right. it's like they know they're going in for six months of chemo. And then like most types of cancers have plans. And you go in, you know the plan, you do it, and like you get answers. Right. But. So yeah. at what point was he just like, we got to try something different. Did he call, did he reach out to anybody else? So the second type of chemo he put me on, he had called a, a doctor in um, New York that I guess had specialized in ACC. And he was like, try, I think it's called Steptis. I don't remember some n weird name, but that's when they tried me on the other chemo, but I, my tumors didn't respond to it. So he was just like done at this point. He's like, I, I have nothing left to offer you. I mean, at any given time, how many cases like yours are there? I mean, to your point, most doctors might have maybe read this in a book. Yeah. But probably never dealt with it's it. It's just what they're looking up. There are a few doctors. There's one in Michigan um, that's an expert. And then there's one, I forget where he's located, but there's two ex experts in the U.S. Okay. So, and I didn't know about them at the time, but now through Facebook groups and stuff, a lot of the ACC patients will travel to go see these experts. Okay. But, and so at this point I, I called a friend and he had been battling a rare form of, um, or renal carcinoma since 2011. And he, an immunotherapy drug had saved his life. He was like one of the first patients on immunotherapy drugs in the world. And so, um, he immediately like sent all my information, got me to send all my information to his doctor in California. And we went and saw him and he was like, I think these drugs can work and you have no other, you know, nothing else right. to offer you. So might as well try it. And that's when I started on Keytruda was right after that. And then quickly, like my body started to get better and I just started to have more energy. And we didn't know if it was just because chemo was leaving my body or if this drug was actually working. Like we had no idea, but after four infusions of Keytruda, um, there was only one tumor left in my lungs. Only one left. Mm -hmm. Down from what? Like, like plus 50. Oh, my gosh. So you do that for a year plus. Yeah. Nothing. And then a month later with this new... And had anybody used that medicine for your type of no. cancer before? No. I was oh the first. God. Were they coming in doing case studies and studying what was going on? <laughs> no, because I wasn't in any studies. So I'm sure that like it's documented now. And there's through Facebook, there's been other patients with ACC that have responded well to Keytruda. But none of like none of them like I did. The cool thing about Keytruda is for those that are LDS is uh, President Uchtdorf had given me a blessing um, when I was very first diagnosed. And in that blessing, he said there will be a medicine that is not yet on the market that will be for your benefit and your good. And Keytruda wasn't on the market at that time. It was on the market about eight months later. How did that blessing happen? Um, he is really good friends with my sisters in laws, really good friends. So she asked them if they would ask him to give me a blessing. <laughs> so wow. he was already my favorite, but I know. he just jumped even further. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. So that was a huge miracle. And that drug gives people like crazy side effects. I didn't have one, not one side effect. Like it will give people like really bad rashes. It can really affect their lungs. Like it can do all these gnarly things to people and I nothing. Like I would take the drug at one point I took the drug, got on an airplane that night and went on a 20 mile backpacking trip. Like what? Yeah. I wouldn't even do that healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. That is unbelievable. So that was, that was it. But it doesn't stop there. Of course uh, right, not. Right. So then the, the cancer was also in my liver at the time and Keytruda for some reason didn't touch my liver. And the tumors in my liver, one grew to be um, 18 centimeters. The other one was 10 centimeters. The other one was nine. And the other one was six. So my whole... Did you even have a liver? Not. I mean, th luckily, it was all on the right side of the liver. So the left side was clean, which is the Could you feel reason. those? I mean, those are big tumors. So you couldn't feel it. You couldn't see it, which is crazy for my tiny little frame of a body because it had just grown like all the way to the left side of my body and then down to my pelvis. So it was just taking up and just pushing organs out of the way. I was in a lot of pain and like miserable because none of my organs are where they're supposed to be. So we have this 
talk about swings of emotion. I mean, we have this yeah. drug that works, the lungs go down to one, and now all of a sudden, the liver it's just out. the next. Mm-hmm. Which has been my five and a half years. It's constantly like we get a breath of fresh air, which Keytruda was the greatest thing ever. And God for sure knew I needed that break. Because we had three months. It was the summer of 2016. We had three months where I was healthy and strong. And we got to just like actually live our lives again. And so that was, I even said to a friend afterwards, like if I were to die now, I would be okay. Like I just felt so cheated before that. Like I didn't get to, you don't realize, you really don't realize how special life is until it's about to be taken from you. And I think that's a beauty of being diagnosed with cancer is that you get that awakening. Um, and so I just felt so cheated because I was like, there's all these things I want to do and haven't done and experience. And now I don't get to and life's about to be taken from me. And so that summer, it was like we were never home. We just were always playing as a family and just making memories. And what is your daughter doing like throughout this process? Like, she was so young. but Could she understand what was happening i think to some extent i mean she was 18 months so it just became normal she when she would come to the hospital though she wouldn't come near me like the first time she ever came in the room and i couldn't see her when i was in the icu and so there was i would go days without seeing her and trying to facetime her and then i think naturally as a kid you kind of like resent your mom for not being there right and so she'd come to the hospital and we realized very quickly that if she could see any IV or anything on me, she wouldn't come near me. So we got to the point where I would make the nurses unhook me from everything and just like leave my IVs in and then cover everything with a sweatshirt so that she would actually come near me. And even still, she'd be like super hesitant. Um, but it's actually been in the recent years when she turned like five and six that we started seeing the like trauma and emotional parts kind of come out through behavior and stuff and that's been really hard but we've put her through counseling and um, therapy and tried to help her just release that trauma that's been built up over the years because she doesn't know any different her mom's always been sick her whole life but then when you get bouts of me being healthy and then I go back into the hospital I think that's been really hard now that she understands it more it's almost a parallel to what you're going through, right? Yeah. Just kind of like you get a little little ray of sunshine and then gets taken away. And that'd be really hard for a kid. And it'd be really hard as a parent, I think, because kids don't have filters. And so it's like, hey, I'm sick. Be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't care. I want you home. And so I, I, that would be tough. That'd be really tough. Yeah. But yeah, she's... She's a firecracker, that one. She's oh, hilarious. She's just like me. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why we butt heads so much. Some of my favorite Instagram <laughs> stories of yours are when you've kind of hit your wall with her. And, oh. I, and I think everybody would, would agree that follows you that your honesty is your best trait. On I mean, you just, I love it. Doesn't matter what time of day, what, what you're wearing, like what emotional, you know, emotional state, you just, you share it. And I think that it is such a healthy, healthy thing. And so... Well, as humans, we crave connection. And the only way to connect is by being true and vulnerable. Right. And that's why I believe people connect to me so much is because I'm not afraid to be like, this is real life. And people come anytime I talk about like Hensley people, it's like my DMs explode. (laughs) It's like, thank you. Oh, my gosh. I I hate my kid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Everyone's like, oh, my gosh, because. If you're a mom, you get it. For you sure. know how hard it is to be a mom. And so people love to be able to see someone say that, yes, being a mom freaking sucks For a sure. lot of the time. Were you as open in the beginning of your journey as you are now as far as like no. sharing it? I remember when I was in the hospital the very first and I had like opened up Instagram. And back then I had like, I don't know, like 300 followers. <laughs> and I opened it up and there was and I was private. So there was all of these requests and i just remember going through and being like who are you no (laughs) decline 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 and seeing people from like high school coming out of the works like you only want to follow me because i have cancer decline like (laughs) i was just like so annoyed that people wanted to like get into my business but then it was slowly as like 
people started telling me how much my story helped them, I was like, oh, this is more than them just wanting to get into my business. They see someone doing going through this and they want to know how. And it doesn't just help people with cancer. Like people tell me that all the time. Like I'm, I don't have cancer, but my life is really hard right now. And I'm really grateful that you're so open about how you get through the hard. So when did you kind of recognize that it is something like you sharing it's, this is kind of giving you a platform to help others. Like, can you see that while you're going through it? Like, are you able to kind of see this might be helpful to other people someday? I wonder if there was a turning point to that, to that point, like where you realized, because you're declining, right? You're declining everybody. Like, stay out of my business. Don't just like me because of my cancer, (laughs) right? To going like, hey, because I'm a firm believer that our trials aren't for us. Me too. They're for others. Mm -hmm. It's for us to be able to help other people and relate to more people and lift more people up. And was there something that was kind of a wake-up call or a light bulb going off that said, okay, I've got to open up and, uh, you know, I can help a lot of people? I'm trying to think when I un- made my Instagram no longer private, but I don't, I don't remember, but I'm assuming that at that point I was willing to let more people in because I was seeing how it was helping those that like did know me or had heard my story from a friend or something. What stage were you at when you did that? Like where were we at in the journey? <sighs> I, I think it was probably through chemo. Okay. Um, cause I really started documenting every chemo and how I was feeling and, um, I think with anything too, if you get a good response, you're more willing to keep going. Sure. And the love and support that I continually felt made me more willing to continue to share. And so that continued on. And then, and then it just like grew. I don't even, it was just so natural. It just kind of grew on its own. I was never trying to grow an Instagram base and it just happened. Wow. Well, that's a part of social media. I don't think I've ever really thought of before. I mean, using it as a support system for things like that. Yeah. You know, I think that, Social media is kind of has a negative connection to it now because that you know it's easy to see negative things. But I also think that there's a whole other side yeah. that can be really good. And I've never really thought of the whole support side of it, yeah. know, especially in your situation. Just to have so many people rooting for you. And, and I mean, I get people all over the world that will send me and be like praying from you, praying for you from Finland, and praying from you from you know Honduras, like. How cool is that? Yeah, it's so cool. And I've been able to connect with people and um, th- that are fighting cancer in other countries. And, you know, it's just it's a really cool thing to be able to connect that way. Well, do you ever look at, I mean, obviously that first year and a half was, had. I mean, I can only imagine based on what you've shared, pure hell. Yeah. Do you ever look at that as kind of preparing, almost preparing you to uh, that key true to thing keeps coming back to my head. Like you're the first, yeah. at least with your yeah. form of cancer to get that. Yeah. Cause it's made for lung cancer and melanoma. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, do you ever look at that and realize that you were getting prepared for something? Oh, kind of like you've got to fight this fight. And if you keep your head down you keep in it or do your best. Well, and it's like you just said, like our trials and experiences allow us to help others. And I, um, so I started a nonprofit in the midst of all of this madness to help specifically young moms battling cancer. And for me to be able to sit down in front of them and see them going through chemo and like look into their eyes and know exactly what that feels like. I needed to experience that pain and that hell so that I can sit down and tell them it will get better. Like you're going to get past this mental insanity that's going on in your head right now and look at them and be like, I know you feel crazy. Like chemo's making you crazy. You're not crazy. Because I had a friend that was like, she called me bawling and she was like, I'm insane. Like I'm doing all these things I would never do. Like what is going, like I'm getting so mad all the time. She's like, I'm not me. And it's freaking me out. And I'm like, it's their drugs talking. <laughs> like, I promise you, ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say, ask your husband. That that question just popped in my head. Does, does he ever, because I could totally see him being a great benefit to spouses. Yes. Of somebody, of we, people going through that. Our plan is to write a book. Right. We're just. I hope you guys do. <laughs> but 
to be able to when someone's diagnosed be like okay this is for the patient this is for the spouse right this is what is gonna help you guys get through this and tragen will always tell every husband or wife whoever is the the caretaker do not try and fix it Uh, right 100 percent. like he was always just trying to like fix it and look for the positive and look for the good and i didn't feel like i was allowed to be pissed and i needed a good like almost two years of being pissed (laughs) Right. Like it took me a long time to come around. Sure. And I mean, I had my obviously moments of hope and trying to find joy, but it was really hard for me. And Tragen naturally was already a positive person. And so it was easier for him. And I wasn't at that point. And so he would always tell, he always tells spouses, like, let them fill and just tell them you're sorry and you love them. So you're saying that you weren't a very positive person even before? I don't think I was like at least when I compare me now to me then um, the biggest thing that's made a difference for me is writing in a gratitude journal and when you learn to find gratitude every day in your life it makes you a naturally more positive person and I'm like if I would have done that whenever I speak to youth groups I'm like start it now right (laughs) start a gratitude journal now so that you just naturally learn to find gratitude in because then when it is dark, you can still find gratitude. Sure. But So do you have every day I'm going to find three things? or is I it write just three things every morning. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you just wake up and that's the first thing. I do three things of gratitude. Two, two reasons I love Tragen. Two reasons I love Hensley. And then I write my I am statements. And I always write I am NED, which means no evidence of disease. I write my liver is healed and my lungs are healed. I write it every day. And then I write, and I'm grateful for all the treatments that got me to this point. And I'm like, until those statements come true, I'm going to continue to write them as if they've already happened. How often do you go back and look at old posts? I don't know. What do you call it? Oh, Instagram. Entries. No, entries. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Um, I I just found some old journals the other day, and I opened it up, and I read one on Instagram because people see me now, and if they're especially if they're a new follower, they're like, how is she so happy about all this? Like she's in and out of the hospital all the time, blah, blah, blah. And I read one of my old journal entries and people were like, oh my gosh, I needed to hear that. Like I needed to know that you struggled that bad to know that like right now when I'm in my dark, that I can get to the point, the place that you're at one day. Like it's, it's comforting to see someone and know that they were that dark and it was that hard. And then they got over it and got through it. Wow. Yeah. So from a husband perspective, I can't even imagine watching my wife go through that. I mean, to the point of wanting to fix it. I get that. I would a hundred percent. I would be going absolutely crazy with this helpless feeling of not being able to do anything because most things in life, I feel like we can help, right? No, not with the wife. (laughs) It's not about the nail, Andrew. (laughs) It's not about the nail. But what did he do? I mean, he's not here. I'd love to ask him, but I mean, during this year and a half, is he still having to go to work every day? I mean, like what, what is he doing as he's just watching you just go through this, knowing that there's nothing he can do? Yeah. He took, thankfully the plate, the office that he worked at at the time, they, they were really sweet. They actually let him have Fridays off and then they worked for him so that he, they gave him all of the money he would have That's made those so days, cool. which was pretty amazing. They did that for a few months, but he took a ton of work off in the beginning just because we thought I had two to three months. Yeah. You know? Um, and then he started going back to work regularly, but for him, he's the type of guy that when he's struggling, he gets really quiet and he just kind of puts his head down and distracts himself. And he did a lot of that. He'd spent a lot of time in the garage Um, just fiddling around with like wood projects and building things and tinkering and just or he'd watch a lot of movies like he just kind of fell into like this deep depression like all of us were and but his way of dealing with it is just kind of escaping the world so which could be good it's like you don't need you know if he's not going to be positive no he was positive i wasn't positive. no i'm just saying like when he's struggling you know what i mean like when he is in one of those dark moments, it might be good to just like go watch movies, stay out in the garage. Like things are hard enough for me as it is. I don't. 
And I wasn't nice to him. I was so mean. Like, I wouldn't have wanted to be around me either. Like, I was a terrible wife. (laughs) And I don't think anybody would blame you for being like that, obviously. But it it, it would be hard because it's like, it's not like you can go up and say, honey, I'm just kind of depressed today. Oh, really? Uh, I had a hard day. Oh, did you? Really? Well, <laughs> Which we is what I would have said. Yeah. I would have been like, really? We can Your talk day's about hard? when I uh, get home from chemo. Okay, sweetheart? I mean, give me a break. So that would be a really, really hard dynamic. It's a very strange dynamic. And one that you're obviously not prepared for sure. in any way. No. So, so we beat it now. I wanna, what happens next? So now we find... Oh, the liver. Massive tumors on the liver. Now what? So they start me on Y90 radiation, which is where they put these little beads, glass beads full of radiation directly into your liver. Um, They do the procedure and it doesn't like really, the glass beadlets don't stay in the liver, which causes problems because they're really damaging to the lungs. So they're like, we can't do that again. So then they're like, we're going to take chemo and put it directly into your liver. So they take the red devil, which I'd had before. It's called cisplatin. Terrible. The red devil. They call, it's literally red. I have pictures of the first time they infuse it into my IV, and it literally looks like they're infusing blood into your, like, it's awful. And they call it the red devil because it makes you feel so sick. So they put that in through my groin directly to the liver, and they do that twice. And one of the times was like three days before Christmas. And it only 5% of people lose their hair from it, of course. Lost my <laughs> hair for the second time. <laughs> I was like, really? Come on. (laughs) So that Christmas was like, I slept from like the 24th to the 26th. I like got up Christmas morning just to see Hensley open her puppy. She was getting a dang puppy for Christmas. And then I like had to go back to bed. Like I was so sick and just slept for three days and miserable. And then a couple weeks later, I'm like in excruciating pain. And they said that there was... I think it was an 8% chance you will need your gallbladder taken out because of a chemoembolism. Sure enough, should have just like scheduled the gallbladder removal <laughs> surgery before. Tragen takes me to the ER one night because I'm just dying. And they're like, oh, yeah, your gallbladder is really inflamed. We're going to have to remove it. I'm like, okay, great. So normally a gallbladder surgery is laparoscopic. Of course, they have to open me back up again because it's such a mess in there. The guy can't even find my gallbladder, like laparoscopically. So they open me back up, remove the gallbladder. And when I went back to that surgeon to have the staples removed from the incision, he was like, can I take your case to the tumor board? And I was like, sure. I don't care. I don't even really know what a tumor board is. But he takes it. And a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from my interventional radiologist at the time. And he's like, so there was this surgeon in the tumor board that spoke up during surgery. And he thinks that he can remove your tumor and give you more time. And he's like, I think it's way too aggressive. I think it's too dangerous. Um, I think we still have options. And I'd been told I was inoperable so many times before. So in my head, I just thought, who is this cocky? surgeon (laughs) that doesn't know me that thinks that he can just like come in here and be like oh i'm gonna like save this woman's life (laughs) like i didn't even i you think i'd be like okay let's do this but i wasn't i was like no this guy's trying to use me to like up his career that was my first thought so i call his front desk well first i google him call his front desk and poor melanie who now I love, but I didn't know her at the time, obviously. I drilled her for like 45 minutes on the phone. I'm like, what's his credentials? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Like, would you let him touch you? Would you let him touch your daughter? Like, you know, I was just like in the zone trying to figure out who this guy was that thought. Where was he? He's at IMC. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we go to meet him and I'm still just ready to go, you know, tell him all I think about him. And he walks into the room. He locks eyes with me immediately, sticks his hand out and says, hi, Kim, I'm Dr. Zendejas. You can call me Dr. Z. And I knew right then that he was going to change my life. Like all the anger, all the everything that I had felt leading up to that moment about how he was using me and I was going to be a guinea pig and blah, blah, blah. It all left. And God sent me a very clear answer right there. Gosh, I just got the chills. (laughs) Same here. And he told us that day, like, I've never performed a surgery like this. There's a very likely chance you will die on the table. 
but yet again if we don't do something you have you know the two to three months the famous the line (laughs) to live so we left and i the day that we left my mom and tragan and i all three of us were like if we had to decide today what would we say and the three of us said yes and my dad he just he just looked at me and he was like i can't like i can't think about you going through that like i just I just, I still can see him. He stood where Dr. Z's office is on the sixth floor in building one at IMC. So it's up there high. And my dad just stood and stared at the window while I was just pacing, like talking out loud, like sharing all my thoughts that were just like running through my head, you know? And I remember my dad just staring there. And then we tried to go get food afterwards, which was like the dumbest thing because who can eat after that? (laughs) We just all sat there and like stared at our food and we're like, uh, but we decided to go through with it and it was, so my original surgery was March 12th and three years later on March 15th was we, which we termed my Hail Mary. That's the Hail Mary mm-hmm. surgery. Yeah. So that was, that so was insane. what was it? What made him think what I did had he had, he's like, okay, I think I can so the biggest thing have an idea. is that all the tumors were on the right side of my liver. Okay. So the left, your liver grows back, which right. is pretty amazing. Yeah. So he knew that he could remove all the right side and the left could grow back and be fine. And then I had the one still in my lung and it was on the bottom of my right lung. So that could be removed. Um, and then they knew that they were probably going to have to reconstruct my IVC. And so the three of those things together all in one surgery is what made it so complicated and so dangerous. Plus the fact that the liver was like taking over the whole body. Um, and I'd already been opened up twice. So there was scar tissue and all Mm -hmm. that that they have to go. Like it took them two hours just to get through my scar tissue. Two hours? Just to like clean up everything and get through it so that they could get to the liver. Yeah. Oh. So the surgery was 12 hours and they removed 70% of my liver a fourth of my right lung reconstructed the IVC and Dr. Z um, still to this day, like praises my anesthesiologist, um, Dr. Rideout for saving my life. He's like that man kept you alive when I have no, like I have no idea how my blood pressure dropped to 40. They were putting so much blood in me and I was just bleeding out faster than they could pump it back in. And at, after 11 hours, Dr. Z said he threw his hands up in the air, like just thought I was done. He left the room. He's like, I went and got something to eat, something to drink, went to the bathroom, cleared my head. He's like, I came back in and Dr. Rideout had kept you alive. He's expecting to walk back and you were. Yeah. yeah. That man, I got to, I got to meet him. I, you meet them before surgery, but I. The, all of the drugs gave me complete amnesia that I don't remember anything of that day except for checking into the hospital. Um, so I don't remember meeting Dr. Rideout and I've never seen him since. And I had a procedure two weeks ago and I was telling my anesthesiologist for the procedure about Dr. Rideout. And he, he left and when he came back, I saw him walking down the hall with a man next to him. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just knew like, my soul, my heart just knew seeing him walk down the hall that that was him. And I just started bawling and I like threw my arms around him and I was like, Oh my gosh, I love you. You saved my life. Like, so, so what can, like what types of things was he doing to keep you alive? I have no, I, I don't know enough about anesthesia Neither to do know I. like what he, like, anesthesia I need to, go to me is just him. knock you out and you come back. But obviously it was more. Yeah. I need to go. I want to go sit down and like interview him and get his point of view. And like, I want the nitty gritty, like Dr. Z gave me his surgery notes, but I still need to like sit down and interview Dr. Z and I want to interview Dr. Rideout and like the other liver surgeons and the heart surgeon and the lung surgeon, like all of them that were in there. So Dr. Z comes back. You're still alive. He can't believe it. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'm going again. Yeah. And, and just, they, and I don't even know what they needed to do. Cause they only had an hour after that because it was 12 hours yeah so i don't know if like my bleeding had stopped at that point like isn't that crazy i mean yeah to think that heaven for something would have happened that he was so close yeah i mean they're 11 hours into it he walks out comes back not knowing if he's got 11 more who knows right yeah and then an hour later 
They were, and they didn't think they were going to be able to close me because I was so swollen. So they thought they were going to have to leave my abdomen open overnight to let the swelling come down. And then he's like, somehow, like, the swelling went down and we were able to close her. Like, just so many miracles that happened in that OR room that day. So when they just incredible. When they finished, were they like, we did it? No. They truly, the very first thing the anesthesiologist said to Tragen, he, like, started crying, first of all, when he saw Tragen. And he's like, just a minute, like, walks away, like, tries to compose himself, comes back, and he's like... We're not out of the woods. And he After goes. After 12 hours. Yeah. Oh. He's like, if we, if she makes it through the night, then she has a fighting chance. But they didn't, there was very, there was very little hope that I was going to make it through the night. And I did. <laughs> Obviously I'm here. <laughs> and then I went into a medically induced coma a couple days later and they thought I was brain dead, brain dead for like almost 24 hours. And I can't imagine what that felt like to my mom and my dad and my husband. Like, I wasn't responding to anything. And there's really creepy pictures where I would open my eyes and they would, like, sit there and wave their hands in front of me. But I'm just, like, staring. And you can tell in the pictures that it's just, like, a blank stare into, like, nothing. Like, there was just no brain activity going on. And then I was fine. It's like, when do you remember, like coming back so i actually i was hallucinating for sure because that's what one of the the drug that put me into a coma causes is hallucinations but i remember opening my eyes and thinking i was dead and asking god why i was still in a hospital bed um i because people were like you know the whack-a-mole game <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. people were popping up like that what yeah and so i would open my eyes and kevin's a letdown yeah (laughs) and the nurse would pop up and then my mom would pop up and then my husband would pop up and it was like no one nothing was real and so i just assumed i was dead and i was angry at god for leaving me a hospital when i was dead i'm like why am i still in the hospital (laughs) even after i can't get out (laughs) of here let me go And so those were my first memories is waking up like that. And then when I finally like came to and, and, um, I had a breathing tube in for four days and you can't talk with a breathing tube down your throat. And I just remember mouthing to my sister saying, help me, like trying to mouth to her, like help me. Cause I was so in so much pain and so miserable and her just like her face, like this close to mine and me just being like, you know, trying to say, help me when I, giant tube is stuck down your throat when they finally pulled the breathing tube and the breathing tube wasn't so long that I couldn't swallow afterwards like I had to relearn how to swallow I remember the first like sip of water I took like choking on it and it was the smallest sip of water like I just I couldn't swallow it was the weirdest thing I had to like relearn how to eat it was so crazy but it's I'm like speechless (laughs) like my brain is just uh, the what the, the thing that just keeps going through my head is at what point do you realize that this was all i mean supposed to happen the way it happened like there's obviously a very big job for you to do here yeah you know mm-hmm. well what i'm thinking is you can look back at it now with kind of that lens of faith i can only imagine during it it's like are you serious god another thing like are you for real right now yeah haven't i done enough and there was, there was an actual, a prayer I said right before Dr. Z found me. And I had specifically said to God, I need you to show up. And I, I, that's the beauty about prayer and about God is that he doesn't show up usually how you expect. Like I didn't expect that it was going to be this insane surgery that has caused lasting bad side effects, you know, for the past two years that I've been, uh, that I've survived it and continually putting me in and out of the hospital for different reasons um, on top of cancer stuff. But I mean, it was a complete answer to prayer. And we've talked about this before, me and my husband, like how do you get to the point where in the midst of it, you can see God's hand rather right. than having to right. see his hand at the end. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Like Yeah. Well, it's easy, you know, from our perspective, hearing it, it's easy to see all the puzzle pieces yeah. fitting together, but going through it, n- not a chance. And I, th- for me, I feel like that turning point was after Kitruda, like when Kitruda started working and then, you know, uh, Uchtdorf's blessing and seeing that. And then for me, 
I started consciously thinking like, how can I see his hand daily in all of this? You have to be intentional about mm-hmm. it. hundred percent. You can't just be like, Oh, do do do. God's not here. Like you have to think like how, and I, I recognized it all the time. Like I'd be in the hospital and I'd be like, he sent me that nurse for sure. Like that nurse was special, you know, just little things like that. Being able to recognize that as you're going through it rather than waiting. And I, I think that goes back to the gratitude thing too being grateful for that nurse and like it all just ties together so looking at it now are there any have you ever figured out the why like what what what's my job like okay you saved me you put me through all of this you helped me i mean because because you are so much more than your sickness like your your personality just the way that you are the way that you share it all had to happen because I'm sure you're a lot more yeah. bold now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I watch your videos on Instagram and I'm just like, the balls on this girl, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but I mean, you. I think for most of us, we'd have to be in some of the spots that you were in to just realize, like, who gives a crap if I'm not wearing makeup, right? Or yeah. who gives a crap what I'm wearing? Or, you know, who gives a crap if people judge me for being mad at my kid? What is the, in your opinion now, present... I'm sh- you know this I'm sure this changes but what what what's the why like what what's your job now like being where you are today compared to where you were just a few years ago a couple years ago So I heard on a podcast once um that you get to choose your why like I feel in in life we always ask God why do we have these trials why do we go through this blah 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 and um they said well why don't you just decide why and then run with it. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, I like that. Cause we, we tend, we can wait our whole lives and sure. never know and never really know why. And I, I blew my knee out playing college soccer. And I remember always being like, I have no idea why God did that. I love that to happen. <laughs> like just being so pissed at like ruined my career. like made me slow, all these things. <laughs> and now hindsight 10 years later. I'll take 10 of those, please. Yeah. Over what back I had to like, go through. That was just preparing me just a little <laughs> bit. Just a little bit. So, but I've decided, and I, I feel like God agrees with me, that for me, it's to share that A, miracles are still real. And that miracles happen. And that they happen today. And that God is real. Because I feel like in a world that we live in today... People, I don't care what religion you are. I just want you to believe in God and believe in a higher power because I don't know how you get through life without believing that there's something more than you and something stronger and more powerful. And I still, it's my most favorite comment I've ever gotten on Instagram. And it was an atheist. And they said, I don't believe in God, but I can't help but believe in miracles when I hear your story. And I was like, that is why I'm here to share, like to give people hope that there is something more than us humans here on this earth. Hmm. I could go on for so long. <laughs> for real. You seriously are so awesome. So, Thank you. well, and you know, I, I kind of think it to remind us that there are so many good people too, and that yes. God works through everybody, not just, you know, how many, how, many, how many of us look yeah. at hospitals and doctors the way you did when you called Dr. Z's office? Like, oh, yeah. who is this a-hole? Yeah. Like, you know. Uh-huh. But, I mean, what a the, the fact that right when he walked in, like, I mean, I have chills talking about it. I mean, you just, I'm a. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, you just knowing when you saw him without even talking to him. Yeah. He was your guy. It's cool. There's so many angels in my story. I know that I have heavenly angels constantly around me, but God has constantly sent earthly angels and Dr. Z and all the other doctors and people and friends and strangers that have been placed. Like you don't get through something like this alone at all. So we're not, you're not done. (laughs) (laughs) like no more two to three monthers though right that's the best and the worst part of this yeah is you can maybe close the chapter but just a new one begins yeah because just a couple weeks ago didn't you have another cancer scare 
Well, so after my Hail Mary, it was like every two to three months, I constantly have gotten new tumors pop up in my lungs. So I've had, I've done radiation, I've done tumor ablations um, for the past two years. That's what I've been doing. I've, we just constantly are keeping, oh, he actually opened me up again. I forgot. Right. So March was surgery. He opened me up again that November because there was a big tumor back by my spine. So my abdomen's been sliced open four times. But it's just it's just constant and yeah, um, just recently we've we've now confirmed that it's organized pneumonia caused from a clinical trial that I was on a couple months ago in my lungs. But at first we thought it was cancer taking over my lungs again, and it was like Dr. Z was crying, and Ashley and Melanie and me and we're all just like bawling in his office together and thinking like, like no, this can't because if it's if it goes crazy like that again, you know, Keytruda, my cancer had like outsmarted it. So we had to take me off of it. So it was just like, we got to find another option, but we don't really have any. And it was that scary moment of like not knowing what we're going to do again. So every time you have a scan and another tumor is there, do you kind of go back to the first time every time or are, no. are you at now? It's like, Oh Yeah. It's almost like, oh, you have a cavity. Okay, it we really can just is. go to the dentist. We're going to drill. We're going to take some light game. We're going to be good. It's seriously, it's people, I'll be like, oh, I just have a procedure today. It's fine. And people are like, do you need dinner? Like, what do you need? Oh, my gosh. Ah. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. Like, it's just, it really is like I got a paper cut on my finger. It's like, oh, there's another tumor in your lung. As long as it is treatable, I'm good. I'm like, okay. Let's do it. Schedule the appointment. Let's you could go. probably do half the people, their jobs in the hospital. I would love to see who you walk into the hospital. You probably just go to the closet, get the gown yourself. Oh, I do. Like hook things up yourself. Like, wait, are you new? You know, it's like, oh, is that I how know. you hook up an IV? Really? I know when a nurse is going to suck at an IV, but I'm, I don't want to be rude. Right, right. But we this all have one to kid, man, I I still, th- I'm like, I don't know what he was doing. Like he, and thankfully after he had missed twice, I was about to tell him that he needed to go get someone else anyways. But he was like, I'll go get another nurse. I'm like, yes, please. You should probably never do another IV again. I'm sorry. You're really nice. But that was rough. Like he was just trying to like jab it in you. Like he was giving you a shot and it was not. But I know it's it's good because I know my body and my story so well, obviously, that when a new nurse comes in and I have a new procedure, I'm like, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. <laughs> Tell the, the doctor this. And they're all like, uh. you better but, listen. I don't know. <laughs> so what are you excited about? Right? I mean, not excited. You're excited about life, which is awesome. But yes. like, are you working on anything now? I mean, a triathlon. Are you really? Yeah. I feel worthless. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, she's in the middle of the chemo and she's hiking. And now she's going to do a triathlon. I know. It's amazing. I actually decided to do it when, well, it was, it was a couple months ago. Something bad had happened, per usual. <laughs> but I was pissed. And I was like, screw cancer. I'm going to do a triathlon. Got on the computer, pulled up the Spudman, signed up for Olympic triathlon. And now I'm like, what the crap am I doing? That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Do you realize how smart... Have you ever tried to swim a mile? Yeah, um, no. Yeah. I haven't. really rough. I was like, I'm a good swimmer. I'll be fine. My husband is not a good swimmer, and I'm really scared he's going to drown. But he, He's doing it with you? Yeah. Very and then cool. my best friend, Katie. It'd be fun to be in your brain during a triathlon to see like how, you comp- how it computes pain. You know? Yeah. I mean, being what... It, being through what you've been through. I wonder if things just aren't as painful to you as they are to maybe people that haven't been through what you've been through. I think the difference is just my mental capacity, which I'm so thankful that I was a college athlete sure, because that totally trained me to be like, no, your body can do a lot more than you think it is. Like I think of so many conditioning days where I was like, I can't do another one. And then you do another one, right? you know? And so that, that has been huge, but that's what will get me through it. I'm reading that You Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Have you heard of that uh-uh. book? Yeah. He's a Navy SEAL. Really oh. cool story that, that transitioned into ultra marathoning. Like that now he's one of the best out there. And he says he has a 40% rule. He said most humans, they think they're at their absolute physical like limit. 
they're actually only at 40 percent dang isn't that crazy yeah then you hear the way you know he does these ultra marathons and it's like the mind is it's crazy the body will do whatever the whatever mind the mind it tells it to 100 percent. i absolutely agree with that it's so powerful so what about so this just to kind of close you mentioned your nonprofit. so i made the mistake of clicking on your uh, vimeo link today on your instagram oh, did you cry well i mean <laughs> how can you not i, I mean you know it's funny my wife I and cry i when i watch it my wife and i had a little we'll call it a spat last night right and it's funny i it was basically hopefully she doesn't get mad at me for this but it's just basically her just saying like i need a little more help around here yeah and it's funny, I was watching that. I'm going to try to do this without crying now. I can't believe I cried earlier. But, <laughs> you know, being a mom is the toughest job there is. Oh. And, I mean, hats off. But to, be, to, to have to struggle with cancer while being a mom. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. And so watching you, just watching all those women light up. And, you know, it's not just about the financial help but just you i mean i think that's probably what they're most excited about is just to be able to spend some time with you and just that light you carry and and the experience that you carry so is that moving forward one of the yeah so i think i'm we're, we're gonna do that every christmas so what i did this last year was on my birthday my birthday is december 8th and i turned 31 so i asked everyone to donate 31 dollars for my birthday to my nonprofit. And then we raised, um, I think it was eight, just over $8,000. And then I was able to divvy that up and um, wow. give it to, we did 15 moms. Um, so and if anyone listening wants to find it. Right. We're going to set up this way. We're going to do it much easier this way. We're going to set up where they can actually go and fill out like an application. Because um, it kind of, there was some weird lines that was kind of like, oh, I don't know where you draw the line of like. Sure what you know so we're gonna actually make an, an official application so people can um apply and do that and what's it called what's your nonprofit called it's called lifted by angels lifted by angels this is fitting so for your birthday this year you want 310 dollars from everybody <laughs> yes because right? i'm 310 <laughs> yeah well 32 i'll try to lose 90 pounds and then i'll say i want 310 because i'll i'll weigh 310 yeah there you go so i'll say for my birthday i want a dollar for every pound that i still weigh right here and I'll I, give it to Lifted by Angels. I think you just made a commitment to her to do it. Well, you get yes! three times from me. That's oh wait, maybe not the ninety last pounds. Thing. I need more money than that from people, but <laughs> I'll give it all to you. You're awesome. But I mean, what what a cool thing! I, I anybody that follows you or or if they don't, they need to start. Click on that link and watch. I mean, what a neat thing! It was a really. It'll cool be cool experience. to see you build that in the in the future because I think it's we forget how many people cancer is affecting, but I think. And Kids and moms, uh, that, that, that makes it even, you know, yeah. To, moms are just so important. And so, um, anyway. And it's what I relate such to an and what's, it's what I understand. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for, Thanks for coming on and me. being willing to talk about this a little bit. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. Thank it was you, really thank good. Thank you. Thank you. You are, you're incredible. So thank you really for being here. Cause that's, we will help spread the word however we can. Thank you. So, Thank you. All right. Go swimming. I will. <laughs> <laughs>